0: Hosea 11, 1 through 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord."
1: Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. Please uh, keep your Bible open, if you don't mind. Always keep your Bible open. Don't trust me unless I say what God already said. Uh, Well, we have two more weeks in Hosea. And um, I don't know about you, but it hasn't been the most comfortable sermon series we've ever had. Anybody notice that? Um, But hey, Christmas is coming, so (laughs) good cheer. Uh, It turns out there's uh, there's some reasons that most of us don't spend uh, lots of time in books like Hosea. Um, But I just want to take a minute uh, to remind us why it's so good for us to spend some time in books like Hosea, prophetic books of the Old Testament. Uh, Hosea 6 kind of said it best, and could kind of be summary, uh, a summary sentence for, um, for the Old Testament prophetic books in general, when, when he wrote, Let us return to the Lord that he may heal us, that he may revive us. It's the reality that revival always comes by way of repentance. Fresh spiritual life, fresh movements of the Spirit are nearly always preceded by fresh repentance. A new and deeper awareness of some of the foulness that remains in our hearts and our ongoing need for grace and mercy undeserved is often what the Lord uses to give fresh life to our souls. I don't know about you, but I want an ever-revived heart. I take that back. I do know you. You want one too. Amen. An ever-revived heart. Ever more movements of the Holy Spirit in you and through you. We want fresh movements of the Spirit in our lives. We want it in our families. We want it in our church, Right? Sometimes we need a little Old Testament prophetic ministry in our lives. Not to inform us simply about how bad it used to be, but how needy we still are. And more than that, how gracious and loving our God always and still is. So if anyone is getting tired or insulted by the weekly call to return to the Lord, I would just humbly ask you to consider how many times a week a million different voices in your world are screaming the exact opposite? Turn from the Lord. Take counsel elsewhere. Seek refuge elsewhere. Set your heart elsewhere. Find your joy elsewhere. Find your strength elsewhere. Devote yourself to this. Spend yourself on that. Compromise a little here and there. Give your life to the passionate pursuit of anything else and anyone else. Just don't slow down long enough to realize that it's all a big lie. Maybe we can all use a heartier dose of return to the Lord after all. But here's what is crucial for us each week that we're in Hosea, really every day of our lives. It's crucial that we don't lose sight of the heart that is beckoning us to return. It's essential that we don't mistakenly misinterpret or misunderstand the motives or the affections of the one who's behind those words that can be hard to hear. Anyone who's ever had to speak harder confronting words to a loved one understands this danger. If you're a parent, you understand this. A loving mother doesn't let her toddler repeatedly run toward the street without raising her voice. A father who loves his rebellious son does not sit back and quietly allow him to assume that nothing's wrong. It's not unloving to tell a wandering child that he or she is in danger and that there's an available path to safety. That's not unloving, that's actually loving. Unloving not to do that. And here in Hosea 11, we get an incredible, intimate look at the heart of the God who's speaking hard words to his people. We get an intimate look at the heart of God, of the God who's speaking these words that are hard to hear, yet we see that his heart is literally oozing with warm and tender compassion as he speaks them. And he speaks this time in chapter 11, Not as husband, not as king, or as vine dresser, as he has in earlier chapters. Each very important aspects of his care for his people. But this time in chapter 11, with almost shocking transparency, he speaks as a father. Now the passage breaks down well into three sections, so that will help us uh, as we look at it one at a time. But before we do, would you just pray with me one more time and um, let's ask for the heart-softening and illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit to be at work as we open his word together. Pray with me. Father, this is not a a normal moment in our week. We just want to remind ourselves of that. There's something unusual about uh, sitting under your word together as a church. It's beautiful. It's a privilege. God, you have said that the unfolding of your words gives light. Well, we need light. Make good on that. You've said that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of your mouth. We need food for our souls. Would you feed us? You've said that without your Spirit's help, spiritual things will seem like foolishness to us. Holy Spirit, Help us receive these words. You've said that you help us in our weakness. I need your help. I'm sure some of my brothers and sisters need your help paying attention. So speak as we look at your word together. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for being among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we'll break it down into three sections. Um, and uh, Why don't we start with section number one? First, we see here um, in the first four verses, we see a father's broken heart. Section number one, a father's broken heart. Look back at the text with me. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Almost feels like an interruption in the flow of the book, doesn't it? When Israel was a child, I loved him. Like a sudden lapse into nostalgia. The reminiscing of a father who remembers better days. So interesting. What parent doesn't remember the promise of the little years? The precious neediness and unresisted dependence on mom and dad. The embraced helplessness of a child and unquestioned trust that a child has that his parents are going to take care of him today. Out of Egypt, God called his son. Out from under the bondage of Pharaoh and his brutal determination to destroy them, father comes to the rescue, telling Moses to say these words to Pharaoh in Exodus 4. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go, that he may serve me. Ten plagues, including the death of every firstborn son in Egypt. The crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground, and God's firstborn son was delivered from 400 years of slavery in a land not their own, not the land that God had promised to Abraham and his family years earlier. And then finally, on their way home. The problem is, kids grow up. The more they were called, the more they went away. I took them by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. It's emotional language, isn't it? Heart-wrenching would not be too strong of a word to say. My kids haven't left home yet. I know that day is coming, but I can anticipate it. And I have friends who've already lived it. And I've been a kid who's grown up and left my home along with my brothers. And I know this, it's not smooth. Rarely is. We, all, we, we, we struggle, all of us. Grown kids struggle. It's hard to get your footing as an adult. Some kids really struggle, make devastating decisions. Parents struggle. It's hard to watch your kids being foolish, knowing that the stakes just keep getting higher. I have zero confusion about why a mom or dad can be reduced to a puddle of tears in the hallway gallery of family photos. It was sweet back then. Not perfect, not easy, but pretty sweet for a lot of parents. Certainly sweeter than the mess and pain that so often defines the experience of parents with Adult children, can't we just go back? And then there's the amplified pain of the mother standing in the hallway staring at the toddler on the wall who once cuddled on her lap but with whom she has barely spoken in many cold years. The dad who fondly remembers teaching his son to ride his bike but who hasn't had a non-explosive conversation with him in years. This stuff makes us sad, doesn't it? I'm sad just talking about it because I know it's real. I know the pain is real. The details differ, but nothing quite gets at my heart like anything that has to do with my children. Anyone relate? You don't have to be a parent to understand this. You've seen it in your own parents' eyes. You know what I'm talking about. This stuff is heart-wrenching. And listen to me say the craziest thing. God wants us to know that he feels that too. Expand your theological boundaries as needed here. I know this can get a little weird for us. But look at these words. God is doting on his children, reflecting on all that he's done for them, all that he's been for them, And then listen to him lamenting. God lamenting about the cold and forgetful response of his children to his overwhelming fatherly care. They didn't know it was me. They've forgotten that I rescued them. That I raised them up that I taught them, that I fed them, that I dealt gently with them. They've forgotten me. They've turned from me. And the more I call them back, the more they run away. This is God saying this, you guys. Do you have room in your theology for a broken-hearted heavenly father? And let's not be so dismissive to assume that it's different for God, being God. It is different. In the same way that his joy is different. In the same way that his wisdom is different. In the same way that his power is different. In the same way that his love is different. It's different. It's bigger. It's realer. It's purer. It's less polluted and diluted by everything that intermingles with our fallen emotions. His emotional experience isn't less than ours. His is the original emotional experience, he's the source of every emotion that we feel. Certainly, God's emotional experience is not less real than ours. Clearly, it's the opposite. If you can sit on the couch with your dear friends and feel their pain and weep over their brokenheartedness as they experience a broken relationship with their kids, then feel this. God has expressed to anyone who's willing to listen that his heart breaks over the forgetful coldness of his beloved children. And not just once. This was not a one-time event. Let's not forget the way Jesus talked about the Father's heart 700 years after Hosea. These words came out of Jesus' mouth once. There was once a father who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. You know what I'm talking about? The prodigal son. Jesus once told a story about an ungrateful, cold-hearted son who woke up one day and told the man who'd raised him, You're dead to me. I'm out of here. And then proceeded to make a mockery of the love and provision that he had known his whole childhood, assuming that he'd find a better life elsewhere. So what we're reading in Hosea 11 is not an isolated incident of divine heartache that was confined to one particular season in the 8th century B.C., In a way that I do not pretend to fully understand, but feel pretty confident God wants us to pay attention to. This is an ongoing wrenching of God's perfect heart throughout the ages. I don't think we can wrap our minds around it, but I know that we shouldn't ignore it or try to explain it away. Behold the broken heart of our God heartbroken like a father with a runaway child, only infinitely more so, whatever in the world that means. Let's move on to the second section, verses 5 through 7, a father's merciful discipline after spending a few verses reflecting on the past, the Heavenly Father steps back into the moment at hand and declares what He's about to do. Like we said, a loving Father does not sit back and allow His children to utterly destroy themselves. He intervenes. Now, There are a couple translation challenges in these verses, but the point is not in question. Because God's people are bent on turning away from Him, they will be given over to the brutal will of the Assyrian king. There's a terrifying irony in view here. As we've been told earlier in Hosea a few times, that instead of crying out to the Lord for help, God's people have looked to the king of Assyria for help and refuge and security. Here, chapter 11, God states with Settled certainty that this king, whom they foolishly sought in place of God, will soon become their captor and brutal enslaver. We need to see this in its historical context as something that actually happened to the people of God in Hosea's day. They were conquered and taken from their home into exile, it's a monumental moment in the history of redemption but we also need to see that this is a pattern in God's ongoing dealing with his children. When our hearts are bent on turning away from the Father, at some point, his response is, as you wish. In fact, it's how Paul writes about the universal problem of sin and rebellion in Romans 1. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he writes, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. When we give ourselves over to replacement gods, replacement sources of hope and refuge, they don't deliver, they dominate. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply, says Psalm 16. It's always the way it works. We've seen this theme running through the book of Hosea, but here with the Father's heart in view, it comes home all the more clearly. These words from Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is God's way. Brothers and sisters, do you see evidence of God's merciful discipline as you look back on your life? Times when he's used painful circumstances to draw you to himself? Do you see it as his love for you? His fatherly care and protection? It's the testimony of countless children of God down through the ages that some of the most painful circumstances they've had to walk through have proven to be the most loving, the most merciful, the most soul-saving. I can speak personally. It's almost without exception that the things that I hate most in my life tend to be the things that prove to be most important in my soul. The most necessary, the most loving for the turning of my heart and the preservation of my soul. This is what I call the steadfast love of the Lord. He puts my flimsy fatherly love to shame. As a father, I'm often most interested in keeping my kids from pain and discomfort. Like that'll be good for them. Whereas my heavenly father says, I love you too much for that. There's something way too important on the other side of pain and sorrow and struggle. I won't let you miss that. I won't keep you from the pain, but I'll be with you in it. That's some strong love. I would assume there's someone listening right now who needs to grapple with the present tense discipline of the Lord that you're sitting under, or perhaps near future discipline of the Lord that you're about to walk into. Can you see it even now as the Father's heart for you? Will you receive it as love and know that the worst thing that could ever happen to you is that you'd be allowed to run unhindered away from God? The worst thing that could happen to you is that God just lets you run unhindered, happy and healthy, all the way to the hell of eternal separation from him. These are not dead words on a page. Learn from the living word of God and stop refusing to turn to your father. And don't make the mistake of believing that repentance will just forever be an option. Just a few verses later in Hebrews 12, we receive the warning of Esau's hardened heart. That though he desired eventually to obtain the blessing he'd forfeited, he was rejected because he found no chance to repent. As Romans 2 says, we must not presume upon the kindness and patience of God. They are meant to lead us to repentance, not to put it off for later. Behold the merciful discipline of our God that flows from a heart of overwhelming fatherly love. Let's move on to the third section, verses 8 through 11. Lest we be tempted to think that God responds to his people's rebellion with a cold, unfeeling heart, God does the almost unthinkable in these verses. It's like he tears his chest open and shows us the most intimate places of his heart. He says words here that most of us would be embarrassed to speak except in the presence of our closest companions. It's perhaps the most raw, vulnerable, tender few words in all of the Bible. Tremble at the heart of your God. Among the most agonizing heart pain that I've ever witnessed is the agony of a mother who's had to stop catching her addict son and instead let him just feel the pain of his choices. The deep-seated impulse of every mother is to protect and comfort and nurture. How can I not do what my heart tells me I'm supposed to do? What I want so badly to do When my child is in free fall, perhaps you've sat with that mother. Perhaps you've been that mother. If so, you at least have a category for the words that erupt out of God's heart in these verses. How can I give you up, my child? How can I hand you over? How can I treat you like an enemy and not my child? The names used here, Ephraim and Israel, as we've seen, are tender, familiar names God uses to refer to his children. While Adma and Zeboim refer to wicked cities that were completely wiped out back in Genesis 14. How can I treat you in a way that is even reminiscent of how I've dealt with enemies in the past? How can my own heart endure it? My heart recoils within me. Some translators say, My heart churns within me or turns over within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Do you hear the raw agony of the father's heart as he looks out on his wayward children? Do you see the heart from which the discipline of the Lord flows? He is not indifferent toward the sinning or suffering of his children. Do you know that you exist in that place of God's heart? Do you know that you exist in that raw, tender place of God's heart? Would he tell us this if it were not so? How often we are tempted to feel overlooked, forgotten, insignificant. How difficult it is for most of us to believe that God of all people, so to speak, the one who sees us most clearly, the one we can't fool or hide from or pretend in front of, the one who knows Everything about us that's altogether unlovely, how difficult it is for us to really believe that God really loves us in a way that could be described as compassionately warm and tender. Do you believe it? That his heart for you can be compared to what we know of a loving parent only with infinitely greater height and depth and breadth and length and strength and purity? Who among us doesn't have to repent of our small views of God's heart? If God's heart is the single most beautiful and compelling thing in existence, then would it surprise you to realize that it's precisely God's heart that the adversary doesn't want you to see clearly? Wasn't it the very heart of God that was under attack in the Garden of Eden? When Satan told Adam and Eve, you won't surely die. God knows that if you eat the forbidden fruit, you'll be like him, and he doesn't want that. If you want what's good for you, you got to go take it for yourself because God's sure not giving it to you. It's the original lie. God's not for you. Every man for himself. Does it surprise you that this is still Satan's top strategy? To get you to live with a warped view, a cooled down view of God's heart for you? Does it surprise you that when Jesus walked the earth, perhaps the thing he seemed most intent on correcting was people's wrong views of the heart of God? Why are you anxious about your lives and living like your orphans, he asked. Don't you know that the God who feeds the birds and clothes the lilies calls himself your father? He knows what you need, knows how to get it to you when you need it. Which of you, if your hungry child is if your child is hungry, which of you gives them a rock to eat? And if you who are sinful fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, don't you think the perfect heavenly father knows how to give his children what they need? Or think back again to the glorious picture Jesus shows us in the parable of the prodigal son after the son insists on finding his best life elsewhere, and the father gives him over to what he wants, the son learns that there's really no place like home after all. His sorrows have multiplied. His false gods have dominated, not delivered. His supposed freedom to pursue his own desires was actually bondage in disguise. And then it's the memory of his father's heart that draws him home. He remembers that his father's a merciful man. He trusts that there's at least enough mercy in him to welcome his son back as a servant, which would be extravagant mercy after how he'd been treated. But what he failed to anticipate was that even with a high view of his father's mercy and forgiveness, his father's love was an altogether different thing than anything else he'd ever known. Different category. Every night, the son spent in the arms of a bought lover was less than nothing compared to the loving embrace he was about to receive when he went home to his father. He did not anticipate a heart so full of love for his runaway child that it would erupt into a party. That his father would run to embrace him and then dance to receive him. This, my son, was lost, but now he's home. That's the story Jesus told to obliterate Satan's lies about a small-hearted God. Will you receive it? The Father's heart is on display in Hosea 11 in a way that needs to find a permanent place in your theology. It needs to be burned into our minds and settled deep in our hearts. It is his otherworldly, heart-churning love that led him to say, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not utterly destroy my people. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. Forget everything you've ever thought about my cold, indifferent, flimsy man-like heart. My love is in a different category than what you're used to. It is this different category kind of love that makes possible what he goes on to speak in verses ten and eleven. They shall go after the Lord. They shall return to me. This exile is not the end of the story. This is not me giving up my people forever, God says. There is a better day ahead. There is a homecoming ahead. Before God's people were sent into exile, he'd already declared they'd come back. Just like he had told Abraham before the family had endured slavery in Egypt. They will come back. This wouldn't be the end of the story. God's wrath, though righteous and deserved, won't get the final word. There's a day coming, declares the Lord, when the lion who has torn and separated his people will be the lion who roars and regathers them. When this lion roars, verse 11 says, God's children will come trembling from all directions and be gathered together as one. From where we sit in 2021, we know that that roar began about 2,000 years ago when Jesus the Messiah stepped up, stepped onto the scene, into the place that no one in the history of Israel could ever stand. This is my son, with whom I am well pleased," the father said. "Out of Egypt, I called my son, Matthew 2:15, declares, quoting from Hebrews or Hosea 11, pointing to Jesus' long-awaited fulfillment of being the son whose heart couldn't, wouldn't be bent on turning away from the Father, but who would instead absorb the wrath of God on behalf of those whose hearts were bent on turning away from the Father. Referring to Jesus to his own death, Jesus said in John 12 "And 32, And when I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Hear the roar. Jesus, the Lion of Judah, began his roar 2,000 years ago as he hung on a cross and died. And as the good news about Jesus goes forth throughout the world, he is right now gathering a family to himself. And he's told us that the day is drawing near when he will return, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his people from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, And the long-awaited regathering will be complete. And we will be home. This is our story, brothers and sisters. We're living in the middle of it, and it's most certainly moving toward a glorious beginning. And the driving force behind it all, and the driving force very personally behind your life and mine, Is this throbbing love of the Father's heart? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so even right now, as we await the final regathering, we recognize that it's already begun. Just look around. Just look around the room. Who could have pieced together such an oddly assembled crew? <laughs> you, know, you know who I'm talking to. We may have a lot of differences when it comes to the details, but we share a Father who loves us in spite of ourselves. He loves us not because we're lovely, but because he has set his heart on us and refuses to give us up. So we gather together each week and we gather each week around the family table and celebrate and participate in the love and mercy that binds us together, family.